don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. All right, everybody, welcome to another Crypto Economy Quick Read. We are hitting part two of our proof of stake uh, discussion here. We did a proof of stake des design philosophy by Vitalik Buterin yesterday. Uh, if you have not listened to that one, uh, I would go ahead and listen to that one before hitting this one because this one is Tur Demeester's critique of Buterin's a proof of stake design philosophy. Uh, so with that, uh, go ahead and listen to that one first if you haven't. Uh, otherwise, uh, we're going to go ahead and just jump into this. Again, this is by Tur Demeester, and it's titled A Critique of Buterin's A Proof-of-Stake Design Philosophy. In this article, I take issue with several of the claims made by Vitalik Buterin in his December 2016 article, A Proof-of-Stake Design Philosophy. My hope is that it sparks debate about proof-of-stake's high-level design and about the proposed future of the Ethereum protocol. 1. Cost of attack should exceed cost of defense is illogical. This is a core building block for the argument that proof-of-stake is more efficient than proof-of-work, so it's important to review carefully. Vitalik starts this argument by claiming that cryptography allows users to defend their data in a much more effective way than a castle or island owner can self-defend in the physical world. While it is true that cryptography changes the game of wealth and information protection, often enabling a level playing field, this is comparing apples to oranges. Yes, it's true that a medieval knight cannot crack a Bitcoin wallet, but neither can a computer hacker effectively defend a castle. Cryptography is used in the real world, where private keys worth millions can be stolen with a $5 wrench attack. Moreover, cost of attack and cost of defense are not abstract and fixed, but rather relative and dynamic phenomena. They depend on the subjective value of the thing that one is attacking or defending, and on the conviction of the actors involved. Cost is a relative phenomenon. It only becomes meaningful once compared to foregone utility, to the opportunities the actor is willing to miss out on in order to pursue a particular goal. In the case of an attacker-defender scenario, cost is also dynamic. If I'm facing an attacker with high commitment and huge resources, my potential cost of defense will be very high, and vice versa. When discussing proof-of-work, Buterin claims that it goes against the cypherpunk spirit because in this system the quote, cost of attack and cost of defense are at a one-to-one -one ratio. This statement is misleading because he's really only talking about what a 51% attacker could do to the very last blocks in the blockchain. Attacks on Bitcoin where one tries to reverse historical transactions which are more than a few days old are expensive in the extreme. Let's imagine that the person who paid 10,000 Bitcoin for a pizza in May 2010 
is now an evil villain, Pizza Man, and he wants to reverse that regrettable transaction. To succeed, he would need to somehow infiltrate and control a full 100% of all Bitcoin mining rigs and mine for a period of over 200 days, or a smaller 51% percentage for much longer, in order to roll back the chain far enough with valid proof of work. After the multi-billion dollar mining equipment acquisition costs, the cost of running the Bitcoin network for 200 days would be over $700 million. That's 7.5 terawatt hours at 10 cent per kilowatt hour. Now the cost of defense against anything less than the Pizza Man attack is hard to compute because it suffices for competing Bitcoin miners to simply follow their economic self-interest and mine Bitcoins for their own account. The protection of the network against a myriad of possible attacks is a side effect. Given that knowledge, subjective value and resources are spread unevenly in society, just like in nature, there will always be a tug of war between attackers and defenders, no matter which security mechanism one uses. To speak of a cost-defense ratio of 1 to 1 is quite meaningless in my opinion. To return to cryptocurrencies. One can try to design transaction clearing algorithms that are different from proof of work, but all you end up doing is obfuscating the work that attackers must do to exploit the system, and making it harder to define how much and which kind of work defenders need to do to keep the ledger honest and complete. Like Paul Zorik has stated, also echoed by Adam Back, quote, all proposed proof-of-work alternatives should be labeled obscured proof-of-work, end quote. Two, no, humans are not quite good at consensus. Vitalik asserts that a 51% attacker who reverted the transaction ledger in his favor would have a very hard time convincing the community that his chain is legitimate. The crowd would unmask him and quickly reach consensus to restore justice. He continues, quote, These social considerations are what ultimately protect any blockchain in the long term, end quote, and cites the stone money on the island of Yap as an example. First of all, I don't think the stone money from Yap is a good example of the effectiveness of social consensus. We have virtually no information about the amount of fraud committed or prevented under the stone money system. Further, it is well known that mores, customs, rituals, and social pressure play a much larger role in tribal communities like on the tiny island of Yap, so it's not fair to assume that one can successfully operate a similar system of monetary coordination in society at large. And finally, the Yap social consensus ledger became victim of at least two successful attacks. The first was in 1874. The Irish-American captain, David O'Keefe, managed to use large amounts of cheaply produced stones as currency to gain power and wealth. The second documented attack on the Yap financial system happened when German traders confiscated the Yap stones and instituted harsh capital controls. So let's focus on Buterin's assertion that social consensus is a protection against resource-driven attacks. In my opinion, that is plain wrong. An actor with the assets to conduct such an operation can target his attack on very few individuals and can make it expensive for the community to undo the theft and restore justice. 
or the attacker can strategically target a huge amount of users, making sure to only inflict a small amount of financial damage per user so that the cost per individual to rally against the attacker is higher than the loss incurred by the attack. Even in the rare case where people largely agree that a certain event is disruptive and undesirable, they often entirely disagree on how it should be dealt with. Markets are good at letting people pursue their personal goals in a voluntary way, but that's about it. If a subset of people or an individual doesn't like something, they can always exit. In the universe of cryptocurrency, that means they can hard fork and create their own new currency or soft fork to impose more stringent rules upon themselves. All too often, the word consensus is used as a rhetorical tool to silence dissent. For example, again in a proof-of-stake design philosophy, Buterin makes the claim that if a collusion of validators take over a proof-of-stake chain, quote, the community can simply coordinate a hard fork and delete the offending validators' deposits, end quote. Given that the DAO bailout passed by supposed community consensus, even though less than 6% of Ether in circulation voted on the matter in a process of under two weeks, it seems risky to offend the wrong people in the Ethereum community. In sum, when faced with resource-driven attacks, real response consensus is nigh impossible to achieve. Long or short-term, political systems are not sufficiently reliable to prevent fraud and theft. In the pursuit of social scalability, we can encourage individual liberty and responsibility by using the tools of cryptography, engineering, and economic self-interest as sources of robustness. But what we cannot count on is the idealistic concept of social consensus. 3 unsubstantiated claim that proof-of-stake is more resilient than proof-of-work. Buterin states the following, quote, If desired, the cost of a 51% attack on proof-of-stake can certainly be set to be as high as the cost of a permanent 51% attack on proof-of-work, and the sheer cost and ineffectiveness of an attack should ensure that it is almost never attempted in practice. End quote. In other words, he implies that from a security point of view, proof-of-stake is much more robust than proof-of-work. In comparing proof-of-work with proof-of-stake, consider the following. Point. Cryptocurrency mining designs are solutions to the problem of trust in systems with imperfect knowledge and unknown adversaries. Proof-of-work has applications in early modern money and in nature, where the handicap principle evolutionarily evolved to let animals prove the honesty or reliability of their signal. To my knowledge, proof of stake has no equivalent applications in either human history or biology. Point. A proof of work 51% attacker can significantly slow down the network, but even a single attempt to revert historical transactions requires a huge and long-running expense. In other words, the production of ledger history is extremely expensive and its disruption arguably even more so. Point. 
Contrary to a proof-of-work chain absent a 51% cartel, it's mathematically proven that it is impossible to determine the true transaction history in a proof-of-stake blockchain without an additional source of trust. If a source of trust is always needed, a potential Pandora's box of attack and centralization scenarios is opened. This is a seed of truth behind the joke that Ethereum plans to use proof of Vitalik. Point. In a naive proof-of-stake environment, an attacker can easily create many alternative histories of the ledger, making it cheap to try different strategies. This is known as the nothing-at-stake problem. Ethereum plans to solve this by destroying the bonded security deposit of malicious validators. SolidX's Bob McElrath makes the point that the strategy of economic punishment of attackers is moot if the punishment itself can be forked away. Another criticism of bonded proof-of-stake, as recently voiced by BitTorrent creator Bram Cohen, is the question how one prevents honest stakers from being tricked into interacting with the network in a way that triggers the punishment that's supposed to protect them. Think of it as the crypto equivalent of large-scale swatting. An alternative attack scenario, suggested by Galois Capital's Kevin Zhao, is one where the attacker tricks enough honest people onto his network that it becomes these honest people's interest to support the attacking chain as the true chain. Conclusion While it is commendable that Buterin works to build his cryptocurrency design proposals from first principles, I believe this write-up contains several flaws. He's confused about cost-defense trade-offs and makes unsubstantiated claims about work versus stake-based security. He fails to provide convincing logical or historical proof of the efficacy of social consensus. And he claims proof-of-stake is more resilient without providing proof or arguments, and without acknowledging the numerous objections that have been raised by people of substantial pedigree. Buterin's article does not convince me that proof-of-stake has a sound philosophical foundation, nor that it's a viable standalone mechanism for securing public blockchains. All right, and that was The Critique of Buterin's A Proof-of-Stake Design Philosophy by Tur Demeester. All right, so let's talk about some of this, uh, some of the points that they both brought up here. Um, I'll go ahead and just preface this that I mostly agree with Tur, uh, though I think some of his uh, criticisms aren't quite what I would... How I would uh, articulate them, I guess, maybe. The first one, though, is... Uh, first point he makes is that the cost of attack should exceed the cost of defense and that this is illogical. And I honestly thought I was going to more agree with Vitalik on this, but Tur actually had some really good points here. But this is... For a while, this is kind of how I thought about cryptography in general. But I think I had a different perspective on this because what both of them are talking about is the attack on the full blockchain and network as a whole. And when I thought about cryptography as being 
uh, a means of defense in which the attacker, where the defense is lower cost than the attack. I think in trying to assess what was my difference between their bo both of their viewpoints was that so much of that argument is dependent upon privacy and the granularity of the defense. Like, so they take the castle example, um, or actually I'll use a different analogy just as, uh, like, let's say a force field. Let's say you have a force field, and it's a big, giant force field that covers a whole city of, like, a million people. And you know, or you suspect, that somewhere in that city is a person who has access to a million dollars. And, but you have to get through this force field to then uh, be able to access these million people. You only have to do that once, and that cost of attack versus the um, uh, reward of a million dollars may not be, uh, may not be that, that great of a difference. However, if every individual of that million, of those million people, has their own force field and you don't know which of those million people has the money then you've got a far more difficult problem on your hands because because of the privacy and the granularity of the defense the fact that you can break it down to every individual in this community of people it becomes an incredibly difficult problem of sorting out where that million dollars is and even a five dollar wrench attack Having to do it a million different times increases the social cost, the overall cost, the deployment, everything just becomes a huge, huge task of trying to figure out how to get that million dollars. Um, and that's kind of similar to the castle example is the castle might be holding 500 people and you know a number of them are wealthy. You break into the castle, all 500 of them are your subjects. Whereas cryptography, all 500 of those people have separate individual defenses so th that's how i had thought about it for a long time but in that doesn't actually apply um so it's, that's why i originally had thought i would agree with vitalik on this but i don't think that applies when you're talking about the entire blockchain and the entire network because we're specifically talking about attacking the castle here uh we're we're talking about hitting the entire network and knowing through public addresses and balances exactly where you're trying to hit uh, with your attack, which coins you're trying to steal or which transaction you're trying to undo, so on and so forth. So that was an interesting point by Tur. However, he does get a little bit too specific with the analogy, talking about how, well, a cryptographer or a hacker couldn't break into a castle on a night can't break into, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, and I think that was a little bit too specific, maybe, because I think Vitalik was just using that to illustrate the idea. And it, as soon as you start digging into the analogy, obviously it doesn't quite work, but it does illustrate his concept that it's a whole hell of a lot easier to encrypt and put your password on some information than it is to build a castle. So I think that's kind of as deep as it needed to go. Um, all right, so the next point 
uh, talking about Vitalik's claim that the cost of attack and defense in proof of work is a one-to-one -one ratio. And here I'm actually 100% in agreement with Tur. Is I don't think that any direct comparison of cost here is is pretty much meaningless. And to claim that it's a one-to-one -one ratio, I think really misses the point because there's a lot of different, like Tur says, it's very dynamic. There's so many different ways to attack and different ways to compare because there are things you can do with a proof of stake attack that you can't do with a proof of work attack and vice versa. So I'm in agreement there that I don't really, I don't really follow Buterin's assessment of how the cost of defending and attacking is somehow a one-to-one -one ratio in proof of work and that it's somehow different in proof of stake or that there's any specific measurement that you can place on it honestly at all. Okay, so the next point is uh, Vitalik's uh, claim that humans are good at consensus. And that was the first point in, honestly, one of the only points in his entire uh, proof of stake design philosophy article that I really was just immediately skeptical of everything that came after. Uh, all the other stuff, I think he had really good arguments. This one, not so much. Um, I do not think, uh, again, I'm with Tur on this one, I do not think humans are good at consensus. Um, and particularly regarding like the blockchain and dealing with attackers and stuff, I think it makes a whole lot of sense to use what we have historically to test our theories. And so the DAO actually demonstrates the opposite. In my mind, it demonstrates the opposite of what Vitalik claimed. They had, uh, and what's interesting, I didn't actually know it was only 6%. Tur actually introduced that little element uh, in his critique that it was only 6% of the network that was voting to roll back the chain. And, but we have Ethereum Classic. That's specifically because they were not able to come to consensus on what the right chain was. Now, most people and most of the value certainly followed Ethereum, and I think that's because most of the developers did, but that does not constitute like a measurement or a subjective uh, determination that one of these is the right chain and one of them isn't. Ethereum Classic kept the rules in place. Remember, the DAO wasn't really a hack. It was a fault of the contract itself. So essentially, Ethereum Classic decided that code is law, and Ethereum decided that, well, no social consensus is law. And the social consensus simply followed Vitalik and the dominant players who chose to fork and uh, uh, bail out the DAO and all of the users who were susceptible to that. And considering the vast number of people who clearly wanted their money back, they are clearly incentivized to take the bailout and move with the Ethereum chain. But if all they're doing is choosing to go with the developers and Vitalik over these other developers and other people, then essentially what they're doing is just 
that's just a mechanism of trust. They're just believing one narrative over a different one. And, but I think it should be obvious how difficult it is to trust any of the narratives on the social media and social consensus around these narratives. I mean, the sock puppets, the advertising, the, the amount of skewed narrative and just straight out lies that people just soak up and latch onto. And then the amount of incentive they have after having invested in one decision over the other to just buckle down and shut your eyes and stick your head in the sand and just believe without question the one that you already dedicated to. I think that's anything but easy and shows that certainly doesn't show that humans are good at consensus. I think another reason that it looks that way from Vitalik's perspective is because he's essentially on the winning side of consensus here. But do you think Roger shares his opinion? He seems extraordinarily pissed off that people don't know which, what the real Bitcoin is because it's certainly not SegwitCoin to him. From his perspective, social consensus is stupid and wrong and... He, he actually believes, he said on multiple occasions, that the entire thing has been manufactured, that everybody following uh, the core client is just being, is either a crap ton of sock puppets who've been bought out or a bunch of duped idiots. So, again, it's entirely based on perspective whether that consensus is good or not, is whether or not it works in your favor. Vitalik won, so he's happy with consensus. Roger lost, so he's very unhappy with consensus. Alright, so next point that uh, Tur makes, which I didn't actually think about, is that proof of stake, the the mini chains attack. I thought that was int really interesting because I didn't I never really thought about that dynamic, but Anybody who has, you know, 51% of the network or in staking or whatnot, um, or does an, a staking attack on the network, can make as many chains, many alternative chains as they want. Whereas in proof of work, they have to build and dedicate to a single competing chain. They can't, they can't redo their mining power, you know, for 18 separate or competing blockchains for Bitcoin. If they want to attack and roll back that 10,000 Bitcoin pizza purchase, then they have to dedicate and mine on that single chain for those 200 days. So if that fails, they're up. The game's, the gig is up. But in proof of stake, you can do it 30, 50, 100 times. You can just throw so many chains out there that everybody is just absolutely confused and have them all conflicting. And then we're back to a situation where uh, everyone has to trust everyone has to trust but lastly I wanted to hit uh, something that uh, Tur said that I don't think he um, elaborated on hardly at all and was probably confusing because in my first if you don't if you don't have any history around these concepts I think it's going to be hard to take him at his word for the argument um, but it's when he said that uh, proof of work has applications in early money and in nature and evolution. And he just kind of stated that and he did actually link to a number of things, which is good stuff. I think it does a decent job of explaining it, but I would have enjoyed it actually if he had gone into that a little bit because I think most people are not 
aware of this idea of the the quote unquote a allegory to proof of work that's actually seen in nature. So uh, the first thing uh, he says is proof of work in uh, modern money or in early money. So this quote that he has linked to is a section from some write-up about the yap stone. So that's what this is in reference to. It says, We know that size was at best only a rough approximation of worth and that stone values varied depending upon the cost or difficulty of bringing them to the island. For example, stones gotten at great peril, perhaps even loss of life, are valued most highly. Similarly, stones that were cut using shell tools and carried by canoes were more valuable than comparably sized stones that were quarried with the aid of iron tools and transported by large western ships. So that's a sign of the, the culture and the community itself valuing it as a form of proof of work, seeing it as more secure the harder it was to obtain. Now, this is one that I love. Uh, the other link he does is shelling out the origins of money. This is Nick Zabo's um, uh, uh, writing. And it's talking about shells and ornamentation. So, uh, this is a quote. The origin of collecting and decorating is quite likely Africa, the original homeland of the anatomically modern subspecies. Collecting and making necklaces must have had an important selection benefit since it was costly. Manufacture of these shells took a great deal of both skill and time during an era when humans lived constantly on the brink of starvation. So again, that's actually partnered with the handicap uh, uh, principle or whatnot that um, we're about to jump into. But that it was a show of, it was essentially a proof of work in showing that one had excesses, that one could afford the cost and did the work at a time when work was incredibly valuable and the trade-off of making this ornamentation versus uh, doing the work you needed to survive was a show of strength. Um, but the handicap principle, he just links to Wikipedia, uh, the handicap principle is a hypothesis originally proposed in 1975 by Israeli biologist Amatz Zahavi to explain how evolution may lead to, quote, honest or reliable signaling between animals which have an obvious motivation to bluff or deceive each other. Now, skip down a little bit. The central idea is that sexually selected traits function like conspicuous consumption, signaling the ability to Forward to squander a resource. Receivers know that the signal indicates quality because inferior quality signalers cannot afford to produce such wastefully extravagant signals. Um, and a great example, which if you know anything about the concept, it's almost universally used, is the peacock feathers. Is It's a giant hindrance and flying and safety hazard for the peacock that shows they are strong enough and uh, can do the work or whatnot to survive with that handicap. It's, I will cut off my left foot and still beat you in a fight kind of declaration of nature. So uh, that's all, I think, 
a really interesting point because proof of work isn't isolated. It is a it is an evolutionary. It is something that does exist in nature, and I think those are all allegorical to the proof of work concept. But I think that's actually all the points I wanted to hit and what I wanted to add to it. Again, I thought Vitalik had a lot of great points, and I'm not entirely dismissive of proof of stake. I I think it's a really interesting security model that should definitely be explored, and I think Ethereum has a lot of really interesting things going on. But I don't think the argument was strong enough to accept outright the idea that proof of stake is better than proof of work. I'm not dismissing it, but proof of work still seems to provide a stronger incentive for longevity and honesty of individual actors because the like Tur mentioned the foregone utility problem where you're giving up this massive reward by attacking the system rather than using your hardware to behave cooperatively and stay in consensus with the rest of the network. So in short, I really enjoyed Vitalik's article and I'm not going to stop looking into proof of stake and the different models that they come up with, but my money is still on proof of work. So that will end our crypto economy quick read. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. This was again a critique of Buterin's a proof of stake design philosophy and this will end part two. I'll be sure to link to Tur's Medium page uh, as well as tag him in the post. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at The Crypto Economy and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. But that should do it for this episode of The Crypto Economy Podcast. Thanks for joining us, and I'll catch you guys next time. Take it easy. Music